You know, we started this journey through the book of John at the end of January, and God led us on that direction, all the while knowing the scripture we would come to today. And in that scripture is a particular phrase uh, that someone brought to my attention a week ago because God moved mightily in someone's life using that exact phrasing. And so we have a guest who's going to introduce the message this morning with a personal testimony of something that's happened within the last month. So Mr. Gus is going to come up and he's going to share with us just a second what God, go ahead and come on Gus, something that God did in him, speaking a word of truth and bringing a mighty hand, wouldn't you say? Amen. And Gus, don't judge me because Gus has a far better voice than I do. So y'all can listen to what God did through Gus. Thank you, Pastor. Good morning. Um, a lot of people that know me as Gus always. Um, about a month ago, um, been working, you know, doing my stuff, you know, the regular basis. Uh, one morning I woke up and everything was just as a normal. Um, that afternoon, of course, I came to my sister and my brother-in-law that were visiting from Guatemala. And uh, as we were sitting down for before dinner, you know, me and them were talking in the living room. And uh, my brother-in-law kind of noticed that my voice it was changing, you know, even, I know I have an accent, but um, it was kind of like, you know, being very lethargic on it. That evening, I wasn't able to even eat or anything or drink anything, you know, because my tongue was very swelling. Um, the next morning, same thing, you know, I'm trying to eat my breakfast and I almost choked on it. Well, I called the hospital and said, hey, you know, last week you guys gave me this medicine and it's kind of a, I think I have a reaction. And they said, well, come back. I go back over there, you know, of course they check me out says, I hear, you know, you have every action. We give you uh, some uh, steroids for your, your the swelling. I mean, uh, the steroids for your throat. And, of course, uh, Benadryl for the reaction that they thought I had. And they said, well, you can go home. Well, as soon as I walked to my vehicle, I can barely start my vehicle with one hand. I mean, I'm talking about, I'm... I'm getting like no mobility on my left hand, but I ignored it. As a man, you know, we always think, well, we got this and we can go. I get home, I go lay down for three hours. When I open my eyes, I feel like my head is in a box. I mean, I'm talking about a glass box on it. And everything is kind of like different to me. And I'm like, this is not happening. I'm trying to get up. And at this point, I don't have no more mobility from my neck down. I uh, trying to push myself to the best I could. I end up in the floor. Then my brother-in-law came up and picked me up and tossed me over the couch and says, you know, and I just told him, I said, look, just help me out to get stand up. I can walk to the room. He did that. 
of course, I went to the room. My wife says, no, we need to go to the hospital. I told my wife, no, I don't need to go to back to the hospital. She says, well, one more time, and we're going to the hospital. There's no question about it. Well, I lay down on the bed. Not even two minutes later, I'm back on the floor. Not be able to reach nothing, not be able to do anything else. From, like I said, my arms and my hands, everything is just, like, paralyzed. She rushed me to the hospital. I was able to get off the vehicle, walk into the triage, and, you know, register. By the time they were going to do my vitals and trying to put me in a wheelchair, it took three people to put me in a wheelchair. I was completely paralyzed from my, from my neck down. First thing, they took me for a CT scan. Uh, it's a stroke. We need to rush him to St. Vincent in, uh, in Hot Springs. I get to Hot Springs in an ambulance. Of course, I'm not aware of a lot of things. You know, I'm kind of like, time is not there for me. That same day, of course, I don't allow my wife to go with me. Um, the next morning, they start kind of back and forth. What's going on with this guy? They put me to an MRI. The MRI shows my brain as not have any damage on it. That evening, of course, me and my wife, we cry because there was a relief. I mean, you know, hey, at least, you know, it's not going to be a stroke. But at the same time, it comes to the question, what is it? We get to uh, the next morning, or that, e that evening, I told my wife I was tired. I told her, I said, I don't want to die. I don't feel like I'm ready to die. And she says, no, you're not going to die. You're going to have to fight harder for your life like you never have. Been. The next morning, this is days already without even any food, any water, because I cannot even swallow my own saliva on it. Everything is shut down. And the only thing I can hear is the doctors talking about transferring me to UAMS. That morning, I pray. And I asked God for the first time in a while, if he was going to take me, you know, to make it easy on me and make it easy for my wife and my kids and my mother. And that was it. That afternoon, they did a tap on my back, on my spine, you know, to get the liquid or a sample of my liquid. They took me back and I just saw you know, them to start putting different type of IB. And my wife is already gone. This is by 9 o'clock in the at night already, I would say. And I was right across from the nursing station, and I heard them giving the report to EAMS, what's my vitals, what is this? And I'm at this point, I don't know. Now, she already knew what was going on. My wife did. But she didn't tell me anything because she didn't want to overwhelm me. During this time, you know, I'm worried about things that, you know, I don't have no control anymore because, hey, they're out of my hand. That evening, the only two fingers that I was able to move is these two fingers. I asked the nurses to leave my phone right on my lap because I told them, do not let me down, you know, I will sit. I don't want to end up catching pneumonia or anything like that because I cannot even swallow my own saliva. 
at that point, I heard the nurses talking to UAMS and saying, hey, you know, yes, it's confirmed, you know, he's got G, uh, GBS, which is Guillain-Barre syndrome. I never heard that before, probably a lot of you guys probably either. And at that point, with these two fingers, I'm trying to Google it, like we all do, we Google for everything, and guess what happens? That's when I heard that voice. And this is I'm by myself in the room. The only thing I can see the light is from the, from the hallway. And this voice tells me, are you going to trust Google or are you going to trust me? <laughs> At that moment, I felt like, what? And I said, well, yes, I'm going to trust you. He says, you know how many times you talk about me to other people. But now it's my turn, it's your turn, because I'm gonna show you what I can do for you. And I said, but he says, you're gonna have to surrender. You're gonna have to give it and trust me on this. I said, God, I'm in your hands. That evening, about midnight, I started moving my fingers. But the next morning, I started moving my feet. By 10.30 the next morning, I'm bring the, they bring the, the therapist to see if I can stand up. They stood me up. I did one step to the left, one step to the right. By Sunday night, I'm already turning in my bed because before I didn't, I cannot even press the button to call the nurse on. Then by Monday, I have this uh, speech therapist. Me and her, we bumped heads since the first day because she told me I was in trouble because I can't swallow. But this time I already have a feeding tube through my nose, which is the most uncomfortable thing that I ever experienced in my life. And they're talking about if I'm starting to walk what I started to do, I had to go to rehab after my five times of my treatment on it. That Monday, I started walking with the help of the therapist. But my speech therapist told me that she was going to tell me just what she knew. She was not going to tell me what the doctor told me, what anybody told me. She was there for, to make me swallow. The next morning, they tried again. I cannot even swallow my own saliva still, but I have more movement. I can move my hand. I even pray to the doctor that I can do this with my hand. And um, she comes and tells me, well, you're going to have to go for surgery. I had a peg on your stomach. You had to keep it for three months, and then we'll send you to rehab. The next morning, I'm ready to... Of course, I'm accepting everything. I'm just letting God to work through this whole deal. The next morning, the nurse comes and tells me, at 8 o'clock in the morning, we'll come and get you for your surgery. Then it was delayed an hour. Then it was delayed until 10.30. By that time, the speech therapist comes at 9.30 in the morning. She walks in there and says, God didn't let me sleep last night because of you. And I told her, I said, that's between you and God. 
I said, don't get me involved. And she said, no, he told me that you were going to swallow this morning, and we're going to try that. I said, well, let's do it. Let's try. Comes to the point there, yes, I did. They ended up canceling the, the surgery. The next day, or that afternoon, matter of fact, I started eating breakfast, which it was a late breakfast. It was the most horrendous coffee that I ever tasted because it was so thick, but at the same time, it was the most delicious at the same time because it's over a week that I have nothing in my mouth except for a suction tube. The next day, they released me from the hospital and the speech therapist came and begged me to go to rehab. Let me hear you this, I was ready to go home. I'm, I'm, this is already over a week in the hospital. And she comes and begs me, and I said, well, you're going to have to talk to my wife because she's on her way to come and get me. They transferred me to the rehab, and, of course, I was ready to go take a shower because I was tired of, you know, all this. And, but at the same time, I'm allowing God, you know, to do in my life what he's supposed to do. The next day, they assessed me. By 3 o'clock, he says, you know what? You don't need to stay here. You're going home. You're taking care of yourself so well. But one of the doctors told me, Mr. Alvarez, she said, you're a miracle. And I said, I know. I know I'm a miracle because God healed me. There was a doctor that says, I can't believe that you're walking that soon. I say, I do believe because God is the one to make me walk. And to this day, I'm being so grateful and so thankful to all the prayers for all the people that I know that I never thought that they were going to come forward and say, here, we, we, we are for you. We're praying for you. But most likely, God is actually the one to heal me. To this point, I'm still walking. I'm able to drive, I'm able to do the things that even the doctors have said it was impossible. They will take three, six months, a year, or sometimes two, three years. But one thing that I know is God is more powerful than anything, than even medicine, than anything that they will tell you because they will lie to you. If you believe that God heals, he does heals. Paralyzed a month ago, walking up and down stairs. <laughs> so you ask yourself the question, does God heal? Yes, he does. We just saw it. Visual proof. Does God heal? Absolutely God heals. Open your Bibles to John chapter 5. This isn't just a New Testament thing. This isn't just a Jesus healing people, Paul healing people, Peter healing people. This happens still. God still heals people, God still speaks, and God still does great things. In John chapter 5, we see this same thing. We see a man who sometimes, like the people who were talking to Gus and his wife, they seemed as though there was no hope, that it is what it is, and it's never going to get better. Well, there was a man here in John chapter 5 we're going to look at whose life was very similar John chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1. 
After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now Jesus, uh, we talked last week, had been in Jerusalem, went up to Galilee, which is in the north, and walked through a territory called Samaria. And he got up, went through Samaria, got to Galilee. People welcomed him because he had done miracles. They wanted to see more miracles. He healed the guy's son from 20 miles away and uh, had stayed in Galilee for a while, taught for a while, did miracles for a while. And then a festival comes up, a feast of the Jews, and he goes back to Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't say that he went through Samaria or he went around Samaria or he had other interactions with people. Undoubtedly, he did. Most likely, he taught some more. He probably healed some more. John, the man who wrote this book, actually says at the end that if they wrote down everything Jesus did over the course of the couple of years that he was doing ministry, the world would not be able to contain the amount of books that it would take. And so Jesus had a lot of interactions, but he gets down to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there was somebody who was waiting for him, even though he didn't know it. Verse 2 of John chapter 5. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So just give a little description of the scene. There's this pool of water just outside the temple. I mean, literally just outside the temple. You walk out this one door that says the sheep gate, this doorway, and it's like right in front of you. You can't, you know, avoid it. It's right there. Uh, less than a child's stone throw. I mean, it's just boom, right outside the temple. And this pool of water was there. And they had built these five covered porches. Four, one on each side, and then one across the middle of the pool. And so five, one on each side, one across the middle. And there began to be a superstition among the time period that an angel would come down, invisible, an angel would come down, would stir up the water and put healing power in the water. And whoever was there and got into the water first would suck up all the healing power and they would be healed. And so the people began to believe this. And so they would go down to these covered porches around this pool, across this pool, and they would just wait. And they would watch the water 24-7, 365. For the second they saw some stirring, not some ripples, but some stirring, and they would try to get to the water as quick as possible. Maybe they would try to sneak so nobody else would see them getting there. And they would try to be the first ones in. And they would assume if they weren't healed, somebody else got the healing power and they didn't get it. This was the belief. This was their belief. They were believing in the water. And so this is what's going on. Just right outside the temple where the Jews believed God's presence resided in the temple, in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And so this was right there next to it. So instead of looking where they should have God's presence, they were looking for the pool to deliver them, the pool to bring them healing. And there's this guy there. He's been dealing with his problem. We come to find out later it was probably some sort of lower body paralysis for 38 years. Any of you been dealing with something for 38 years? That was the life expectancy back then. So he probably had this from birth. Either that or he's had it for quite a long time. He's lived longer than most of the people back then. But he's had this for 38 years. And he's there. And Jesus comes up to him, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, this is interesting on a whole lot of levels. Jesus approached the man. Now, we don't know, again, a lot of what's going on here, whether Jesus, in coming from 
Galilee down to Jerusalem, if he walked through the temple to get to where this man was, or he didn't even go into the temple to deal with anybody. He just went straight to this man, to this, to this pool. And did he, going to this man, interact with other people there? Did he heal anybody else before he got to this man, or did he just walk around everybody through the sick and the mess to get to this guy? And it probably was gross. I mean, if you've ever seen on TV or on social media people waiting in line to get the latest phone, this is people waiting to get healed. So they weren't taking bathroom breaks. They were just staying there, camping out, bringing as many buddies as they could with them to help them watch the water for when it would stir to be healed. And so they're waiting there. This guy's there. Jesus approaches this guy, and he asks him, do you want to be healed? Like Jesus coming to you in a hospital room. Do you want to be healed? Now, if you've had a problem, 38 years worth of paralysis, and somebody says to you, do you want to be healed? Is your answer back to that person going to be the nicest thing in the world? (laughs) What kind of question is that? Of course I want to be healed. What are you talking about? Do I want to? Why am I even here if I don't? What do you mean? But that's not what the guy says. He doesn't snap back. He doesn't offer some sort of retort. Look at what he says in verse uh, 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Now the man makes a statement here. It's both about his condition and about where he's placing his faith. Notice the first thing he says in that sentence, I have no one. I have no one. Now that could mean several different things. Either he has no one who was willing to put him in the pool Maybe they'd been with him the first, you know, year, five years, ten years. But now he's 35 years into it and he's got nobody left that's willing to stay with him and put him in. Maybe he's got nobody who is physically able to put him in. We don't really know. All we know is he's alone and he's got nobody. Nobody. He's there all by himself. He's got no one who can put him in the water. But we also see in his statement where his faith is. His faith is in the water. His faith isn't in God. His faith isn't even in the presumed angel who would come and stir up the water. His faith is in the water. That, the water is the thing he wants most in his life, is that water. He wants the water more than anything. The water will deliver him. The water will bring everything he's got, everything he needs, is that water. And he says to Jesus, I have no one to put me in the water. Somebody always gets there before I do. If he's paralyzed, maybe he's crawling into the water. Maybe he's trying to roll in. We don't know. But he's got faith in the water, and he's telling Jesus, I have no one. No one. But honestly, even putting his faith in the water, the thing he wants most in his life, even if he achieved the, the impossible and got to the water first, he would be just as disappointed as he already was. He wouldn't be healed. The water's not going to heal him. I mean, he was disappointed in people, right? He has no one. People have let him down at some point. Maybe he's just disappointed in life. Because he has no one and the life situation he's in. He's got nothing. And he says that to Jesus. I have no one. And his faith is in the water. And Jesus says something to him that's both profound and incredibly brief. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. So Jesus doesn't 
give a preamble. When Jesus doesn't say, hey, something's about to happen. You get ready for it. He just does it. Get out, take up your bed, and walk. What does a man do? He gets up, takes up his bed, and he walks. Now think about it, too. This guy's been paralyzed for 38 years. Any sort of muscle that would have been in his legs would have not been there now. Not only that, any sort of muscle memory in his brain that would have remembered how to walk had he been able to in the past would be long gone by now. Even if you haven't ridden a bike for 38 years and you go try to ride a bike, it's going to take you a minute to get the hang of it. Think about it with walking. So Jesus had to do something just in those simple words. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Not only did Jesus have to put muscle in the guy's leg that was not there before, Jesus also had to implant muscle memory in the guy's brain that was not there before. This is, this is I mean, undoubtedly he did a lot more than that. This is as much as we can think in the moment. But Jesus puts all that in the guy, says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the guy does it, obeys, and there's feeling there that wasn't there before. There's sensations there that weren't there before. There's probably a smile on his face that has not been there in decades. And he picks up his bed and he starts walking. And this man, what, what's profound to me, this man whose faith was very much misplaced, this man did not believe in Jesus, this man did not believe in God, that God could heal him at least. And Jesus still comes to him where he is in the mess that's physically there, but also in the mess that he is in spiritually, having placed his faith in the water. Jesus still comes to him where he is, as he is, and heals him. And what that tells us is that Jesus will come to us. Jesus will come to you where you are, as you are. You don't have to dress up to meet with Jesus. You don't have to pay up to meet with Jesus. You don't have to clean up to meet with Jesus. You don't have to live up to somebody else's expectation to meet with Jesus. You don't. He will meet you where you are as you are, no matter what you were doing last night. No matter the words that came out of your mouth this morning on your way to church. No matter the thought you had about somebody living in your house as you were walking through the front doors. He will come to you where you are as you are wherever it is. All we see in this man is a willingness to obey, a willingness. Even though he didn't know he had the ability within him to do it, the willingness was still there. And so Jesus can come to you and say, do you want to be healed? I mean, really? Maybe not in the way you thought. Maybe it's not even necessarily physical. Maybe it's deep within you. And you say, man, okay, good. I, I know I need to be healed spiritually, and that's all, that's all great. But I've had my issue for a long time, my problem for a long time. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's an emotional scarring or a wound that reaches way back in your past, far longer than 38 years, and it's still there, and you can't get rid of it, and you can't get out of it. And you're thinking, I've had this thing so long, there's no hope of being healed. I mean, this man, 38 years. Maybe all the doctors and people are telling you there's no way out of this. Mm. This is just how your life's going to be from here on out. Maybe you, like this man, have seemingly been disappointed by life, by people, and you don't have any hope of getting out of it. Maybe you're at the point and you're saying, okay, that's great. I see this man was healed. 
That was, you know, almost 2,000 years ago. Gus Alvarez, we saw it this morning, a month ago. God still heals. God does it. God does it. And you're saying, great. But what about me? What, 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 what about me? I haven't been healed yet. I'm still in my mess. I'm still in my situation. I'm, I'm still in the problem. What, what if healing doesn't come for me? What if God leaves me in the situation? What if, what if I go to God and I beg and I beg and I beg and God says, no? What do we do then? What happens then? You know, a lot of times I heard, I was watching a sermon this morning and uh, the preacher was talking about, not necessarily this, but it was something that God spoke to me through the, the scripture he was using, that sometimes we have great faith in God as long as our circumstances are peachy keen. As long as we have our job and we're getting paid well. But the second that gets taken away, our faith struggles. Because in reality, our faith was in the job and not in God. Or as long as our health is good or our kids' health is good, then we're good. But then our faith is in the health and not God. Or it can be, you know, as soon as, I mean, with the job thing, maybe we don't get the promotion we were angling for that we should have got, that we have... Should, we, we should have earned more than the guy who got it. Maybe we get fired again and again and again. And our faith struggles because our faith was really in the job and the circumstance than it was in God. Maybe we slip up with an issue, with an addiction, with a problem, and our faith slips. See, even when the circumstance is bad, even when God leaves us in our mess, even when... The storm is raging. That doesn't mean God is absent. He's still there. And let me give you an illustration of this. A time when a man begged and begged and begged, and God left him in the situation. God didn't leave him, but left him in the situation. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul. Many would argue the greatest missionary the world's ever seen. I've heard him called the greatest Christian who's ever been. Guy went around telling everybody about Jesus to the point of people who were opposed trying to kill him. Like the, the physical manifestation of Twitter in first century. People just out to get you. And Paul's out there just telling people about Jesus. Left, right, and center all the time. Paul, you would think if God was going to take care of anybody, it'd be Paul, right? I mean, he did for God in great ways. But that's not how God works. I mean... And honestly, if you were honest with yourself, a lot, all of us, at least in the back of our mind, we don't want to admit it, have thought that to God. God, I lived good for you. God, I did this for you. God, I attended church. God, I gave money. God, I did, read my Bible every day. God, I raised my kids right, and here we are. Why didn't you do it for me? You did it for that guy, and he is terrible. We don't want to admit that that's what we think, but sometimes that is what we think. But that's also not how God operates. God operates in what's best for the kingdom. And bad stuff that happens in this world is not always God's fault. We often blame God for things that are the fault of a broken and sinful world. But God does allow things to happen because of what free will exists in the world. And free will has to exist in the world. Otherwise, we can't choose to love God. And if we can't choose to love God, then there is no love. And if there is no love, there is no salvation. So for salvation to exist... Love has to exist. 
For love has to ex exist, free will has to exist for us to choose it. And so stuff happens and bad things happen and we say and we think, God, well, why didn't you heal? Or God, why aren't you healing? Or God, why isn't this happening for me when it happened for all, this other, all these other people in all these other situations? God, it's been 38 years. God, I'm begging and I'm begging and I'm begging and I'm still not experiencing it. That was Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Because look at verse 8. Paul writes, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. That's, that's Paul saying, I, I begged for God to heal me. And he says three times there, but the, the phrasing he uses in the original language, it's not just he prayed three different prayers. He's talking about three seasons of life that he went through deep begging for God to heal him. I mean, three chunks of time. God, heal me. Three times, he said, he pleaded with the Lord. Now look at verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is enough. My grace, that sounds good. My, but what is he really saying? My grace is enough. He's saying, my grace is enough for you rather than, my, rather than me healing you. My grace can do more for you than the healing can. Because my grace is enough. For my power is made to happen in limitation, in your limitation, in your weakness. In, in, in the, whatever it was that Paul had with him, and there's all kinds of theories out there about it, but whatever the, the issue was Paul wanted to be healed, it limited him, at least in Paul's mind, of being able to accomplish what God wanted him to accomplish. And God says to Paul, my power happens in your life where you're limited. Say, Paul wanted to do something and it would take 100% of his effort and the, the issue that he had that he wanted to be healed of only allowed him to do 10% of what he thought he needed to be able to accomplish. And he says, God, just heal me so I can at least do 15% of what you want me to do. I can do so much more for you, God, if you would just, just heal me. And what God is saying there when he says, my power is made to happen in, lim in your limitation, he's saying, my power will cover the gap. You, you think you can't do more for me, but don't worry about what you can do. You do what you can do, and I've got the rest. The more you do means the less I can do in you. Allow me to do it. And so he says, my power is made to happen in limitation, in your limitation. And so Paul says, on the contrary, on the contrary to begging for the removal of the thing, on the contrary to begging for the healing, I will gladly be extremely confident in my limitations so that Christ's power may live on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, when we have something that we desire beyond everything, every imagining, to, we have something that we want to be removed and God does. God does heal. I and mean, we just saw it with God. God still heals and does phenomenal things. But when God doesn't deliver in the way we want him to, that doesn't mean God's not faithful at all. But in the limitation, we can find God's great power. I mean, what did Paul say in verse 9 there? So that Christ's power may live on me. So that Christ's power may live on me. You see, that limitation that we have, that limitation that we have may, may keep us from attempting to do really what was God's responsibility all along. 
It may limit us so that we're not out there trying to do God's job for him. I mean, think about it. I, I, I posted a video this week about using an illustration from James 1.5 according to the, about this issue. But if I were in my house and I'm sitting on the couch and asked one of the kids in the kitchen, hey, will you get me a drink of water? And before they were able to do it, I got up and got my own drink of water. I'm not allowing them to bring me the water. And sometimes when we ask God to do something, if it's something we're able to do, we should do it. But if we ask God to do something and then we still try to do what God said he's going to do, then we're not having faith that God can do it. We're trying to answer God's, we're trying to do God's job for him. <laughs> what is his responsibility? Maybe it has to do something with our kids and we're trying to control our kids, control them. When it's, it's not our job to be the whole, their Holy Spirit, it's his. It is our job to parent, absolutely. But their Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Same with our spouse. I'm not Katie's Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, and he's far better at it than I am. The same with people in the church. Hey, I'm the pastor of the church. I'm not your Holy Spirit. I can tell you what Scripture says. I was talking with somebody not too long ago about something, and they were, they were, they were wanting me uh, to, to give them some spiritual direction. And I said, <laughs> what I told them was, I said, I can tell you what Scripture says, and I can tell you what I think, but only God can tell you what you should do. So I'm not going to tell you what I think because that will screw you up because I'm sinful and messed up. But I'll tell you what Scripture says and then allow the Spirit to show you what you need to do. Because in my mind, if I start telling them what they need, what I think they need to do, that's sin in me saying, man, you're screwing your life up, man. If I were in your shoes, I would do this. But God didn't put me in that person's shoes. God put me in my shoes to say, here's what Scripture says. I'll pray for you and I'll guide you. Let the Spirit do the guiding. Sometimes when it comes to our kids or it comes to my family or it comes to somebody who's close and I can speak that truth because I know what's in them and say, yeah, you need to be doing something different than that. <laughs> I mean, I'll speak to my sisters different than I'll speak to somebody I've known for a week. And I can say, I can think in my head, even though it may not be right, I can see the way somebody's family interacts and say, why did they, you know, why did that brother not say something to that sister and they allowed that thing to happen? I mean, if I'm my sister, I'd be on the phone immediately saying, yeah, that is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. You need to not do that. But there's a difference there. God didn't put me in that family. God put me in the family I'm in. God didn't put you in somebody else's position. He put you in yours. Think about it this way. You, you watch a sports team. On TV, like for me, I, I was thinking about the Cowboys. Cowboys signed Dak Prescott this week. And I can think all day long, that was the right decision. They should have made that decision a year ago. But God didn't put me in the general manager's office in Dallas, Texas. God put me in Queen, Arkansas. So that's not my call. I can say all day long, that's the right decision. But he didn't put me there. It's not my job. It's not my job to tell them what to do, even though I can think it. I probably shouldn't because it's not my job. It's my job to do what God put in front of me to do. Not to, not to observe your life and say, man, if I were in your shoes, this is what I would do. Because God didn't put me in your shoes. He put me in my shoes. That's a problem. That's a, this has nothing to do with my notes. 
But that is a problem that many of us have because we're human is we see how other people are making their decisions and we put ourselves in their situations and we assume that we would make the same decision that we would make in our minds rather than the decision they made. And that becomes a problem because it's sin. It's pride to assume that. We haven't been in somebody else's shoes. We haven't been in somebody else's circumstances. We, weren't, we haven't experienced that person's life that got them to that point that helped them make that decision they made. We've been through our own experiences. And so what we do is we judge them based upon an assumption we have that we have know nothing about. What we need to do is what Jesus did. Love them. Irregardless of the sinful thoughts that come through our brain. Because when those sinful thoughts come through our brain, we need to shut that mess down and not only give more love in Jesus to that person, but we need more love in Jesus to us. Because we're having a problem right there. And so that's all from the enemy. And the enemy will come to you, and he will whisper those thoughts in your mind. Those thoughts about, like this man about Paul's issue that he prayed three times, three seasons of life that God would remove it, the limitation that is put there. God, if you would just remove that thing, I could do so much more for you. God, if you would just bring the healing, everything would change. God, if you would just take care of it for me, please. But what Paul said there in verse 9 of that 2 Corinthians passage is that limitation in me makes room for God's power. Limitation in me makes room for God's power. And we see this all throughout Scripture. Limitation on people. And God did mighty things. I mean, the whole nation of Israel was too small and too weak. And God used them to bring salvation through Jesus into the world. David was too young and too inexperienced. And God brought down Goliath. Daniel was too old and too disloyal to the throne of Babylon. And God shut some lion's mouths. I mean, think about Samson. What's the picture you have in your mind of Samson? Some big dude, all muscly and ripped, never wearing a shirt, long hair, all this. But if you look in the book of Judges, the only time Samson was ever strong was when the Holy Spirit came on him. So Samson was probably just a regular dude with small arms, maybe overweight. And when he did something phenomenal with those great feats of strength, everybody's like, whoa, look what God just did. I mean, those thousand guys that he killed with the jawbone of a donkey, you think they thought, that guy's huge. I'm not going near him. Or they thought, that's, that's just one little small dude. We're a thousand guys. We can take him. What, he picked up a bone? That's no big deal. I got a sword. What made it so amazing is that it was Holy Spirit working through him. I mean, think about the New Testament. Peter, he was too loud and obnoxious, and God put him in charge. Think about, I mean, the guys that Jesus called to be disciples, right? I mean, Matthew, he worked for the Roman government. That was a huge limitation for a lot of Jews. That was a big problem. Jesus called Simon the Zealot. He wanted to overthrow the Roman government. That was a big problem for people like Matthew who worked for the government. Think about Paul, the guy who wrote 2 Corinthians, the guy who begged Jesus to take away his, his problem, to heal him. Paul, before he became a Christian, he was a Pharisee who would try to break apart families, would try to drag people out in the street, would try to take them off to jail. He voted repeatedly, he says in his own testimony, for people to be killed because of their faith. 
And this is the guy that God calls to put in, to, to, to lead the missionary movement. Whatever limitation we have in us makes room for the power of God's movement. And so we may beg God, remove it. God, take it away. God, heal. We may say, I need this thing removed. But God says, no, I'm going to use you through that. What you feel like you can only do so much, I'm going to do so much more if you would just have faith. Because faith is the confidence that God will move when my limitation cannot. Faith is the confidence that God will move where my limitation cannot. And so we have to change our perspective. And a change of perspective is a, is a gift. Because maybe God's purpose isn't to heal you of the problem to make your life easier. Maybe God's purpose is to fix your perspective for someone else's eternity. To change somebody else's life. You may wish you had somebody else's kids, but maybe God gave you those kids so that they could be discipled. You may wish you had somebody else's parents or grandparents, but God gave you those for a purpose, maybe for their eternity just as much as yours. Maybe God put you in that job because your boss needs Jesus, and you say, amen, they do, my word, they need Jesus. But so do you. Maybe it's to strengthen your faith just as much as it is to give them new faith. It's for someone else's eternity. Someone else's eternity. Someone else's eternity. So we have to do what this man did in, in speaking with Jesus. And Jesus, we're going to see next week, brought the gospel to the man. Uh, but also in, in, in Paul's life, we have to make room for God's movement. We have to make room in our heart, in our mind. We have to make room for God's power to work in us. Or as Paul phrased it there in verse, uh, uh, verse uh, what is that, verse 9, that God's power may live on us. We've got to make room for it. That means we've got to push some stuff out of the way. Push some stuff that doesn't need to be there out of the way that's preventing God's power from living on us. Because we're trying to wrestle that extra 5 or 10 more percent of control away from God so that we can do more and be more and have more rather than trusting him with what is his responsibility to accomplish. You say, God, but I need to be healed. But God, but I need to be delivered. But God, this needs to happen. But God, I need you to do this and this and this and this. And God says, no, you just need to trust me with all that. I got that covered. God's saying to us, you can't even handle what you already got. Stop trying to do my job. Do what you've got, and God will take care of the rest. Uh, Charles Stanley would say it this way. Obey the Lord and leave all the consequences to him. Do what he's put before you to do. Speak what he's put before you to speak in love, in grace, in mercy, truth of the gospel, and allow him to accomplish everything else. Paul's life would not have been Paul's life if he was trying to do God's job. Gus Alvarez, if he would have kept Googling when God said stop, may not have walked up these stairs this morning. Trust God with what is his. He's trusting you with what is yours. Trust him with what is his. Will you make God a room for God's power to work in you? 
Maybe this morning you need to make room in your heart for God's power to work. Maybe this morning you need to make room for God's power for the very first time, and you need to believe in Jesus. And you've been wrestling with him. You say, I've known about Jesus for some time. I've heard about Jesus and all this Jesus stuff. And maybe you need to make room for him and stop trying to control your life and let him take the reins for a while and say, Jesus, I believe that you are God's son, that you died so all my sins would be forgiven, and then you rose from the dead so I can live after I die. And if you believe that, then you're saved, then you're a Christian. There's nothing else you got to do. You don't have to go and say, I put that on pause. I'm going to go clean up my life a little bit, and I'll come back in about three to six months. No, you do it now. You don't have to get ready like we saw. You don't have to get ready to meet with Jesus. He's ready now. He's already there with you. So come to Jesus today and believe in him today. And if you want to believe in Jesus today, I would love to have a conversation with you. We'll be here. We're going to sing a song in just a second. We'll be here during the song. We'll be here after the service. We'd love to talk to you. You can come. You can grab, pull me out of my small group down the first hall, green, room one, and I'll come and talk to you, and we'll celebrate. If you're watching online, there's a button. No matter where you're watching, website, Facebook, YouTube, uh, just some random place, there's a, there's a link anywhere that says, I made a decision. If you click on that link and tell what your decision is, it sends an email right to my email, and I will call you today. And we'll celebrate that decision. Believe today. Maybe today you're sitting there, whether here or watching online, wherever you're, you're watching this, and you need to make room for God's power to work in you. There's somewhere in your life that you have been elbowing God out of because you want control. Because you want to take that issue. You want to take that thing. And you, you want to be able to, to have it like you want it. Or maybe God has left you in a situation that you desperately want out of. Maybe God has left something there that's been there for 38 years. And it's not just by coincidence that it's still there. You may have begged God for three seasons, of your, for, for three different decades of your life, you've begged God to remove this thing, this, this generational curse. You've begged God to take it away. But God is telling you exactly what he told Paul. My grace is enough for you. My grace is enough. His power works where our limitation cannot. Will you make room for God's power to work on you today?